Hey there, it's Adam here. Have you been enjoying Mate? Have you learned something or put some marketing tactics into practice in your business? Um, maybe you just like listening to the interesting discussions I've been having with some industry leaders. Either way, if Mate has given you some value or enjoyment, um, I would really appreciate if you could do me a quick favor. It's super duper easy and it will take a grand total of 60 seconds of your time. I promise. Could you share Mate with two people? maybe a friend or a colleague or someone else, um, I just want you to pause the podcast right now and send it to two people. Fire off a quick text and an email or a tweet. I've actually made a page on the website with a quick preview of the show. So, you can just send them that link. It's matepodcast.com slash share. So, press pause right now. Um, I'll wait right here. I <laughs> I promise I won't go anywhere. While well, you go and tell two people about Mate Podcast. Pause now. Did you do it? Great. Thank you so much. It, it really does make a huge difference to the future of the show. Um, and I really appreciate it. So, on that really positive note, let's get on with the show. This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. Today, I'm speaking to Tate Ishia, who is a writer and an author. In fact, he's written a book called Copy Wrong to Copywriter, which is aimed to help businesses write better copy. So, in this interview, Tate reveals some of the secrets about how to write amazing copy for your website to help convert customers at a better rate and to make more money. So, let's go talk to him. So, who are you and what do you do? Hi, my name's Tate. I'm a copywriter. I've been copywriting for almost 10 years now. Um, I've worked at a bunch of different um, businesses like ad agencies and um, small marketing startups and have freelanced for a long time. But for the last few years, I've been working as a content strategist, um, which involves some copywriting, um, but uh, also involves other things such as um, developing strategies for how words and pictures and information should be used in large websites. You've also written a book? Oh, yeah, that's right. That thing. <laughs> so, I'm also an author now. Thanks, Adam. Um, so, I just published a book called Copy Wrong to Copywriter, um, which is a practical guide for uh, to copywriting for small businesses and small organizations. And I self-published it. Um, and have raised the funds on Possible, and um, it's out in the world now. You can buy one. That's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So, um, we were just talking before we hit record, actually, and uh, and you were talking about, you know, how you kind of started your career, and you used to, I guess, write a lot of words as a copywriter, and now, um, these days, you kind of do less of, I suppose, on the tools, I'm using inverted commas here, um, copywriting and, and now more uh, content strategy. So, before we get into the book, let's kind of start there because um, that's what you led your introduction with. So, I just want to ask, like, what, what, is, what does copywriter mean to you? It means um, solving business problems with words. Um, so, I like to think... Um, that copywriting, the way that the copywriting is different to regular writing is that copywriting um, or writing for a business has the aim of trying to complete some sort of business objective rather than just be writing for the sake of writing. 
Um, so that's copywriting to me. And in that sense, um, a lot of the time, a good copywriter is not just um, being is not just able to write well, but is also able to work out what a business needs in order to achieve its objectives, and then use words as a way of doing that. Okay. And uh, and are copywriters trained writers by discipline that kind of end up uh, using their talents in the fields of marketing and advertising? Is that generally what happens? Yeah, sort of. I think like I... <laughs> or do you train to be a copywriter? Well, so yeah, uh, uh, hard question. So we there are lots of... Around. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Um, there are lots of different copywriters out there in the world. Um, who have a range of different skill sets. Um, they may have picked those up in public relations. They may have picked those up in journalism. They may have picked them up um, through a life of marketing or um, where I studied, which was um, creative advertising. That was my background. So, um, so generally, I think a copywriter comes from that sort of like professional communication business background and brings that like skill set and understanding to like you know the practice of copywriting and using words Mm -hmm. um and i think at some point they've probably decided that you know they have an understanding of words and of grammar and of how to um use those two things together um and um have probably yeah developed an an interest or a skill set in those things to help them perform their job better um but I think if you're, there are lots of copywriters out there who are just good writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that um, the best copywriters have a really strong knowledge of professional communications um, for marketing, public relations, advertising, even journalism, rather than just being great writers. Okay. Can I throw a bit of a tangential question in here? Just as you're talking through it, made me think of it. Um, a friend of mine who works uh, in a creative agency as an art director um, was telling me about, you know, uh, advertising school um, or ad school, essentially. And, and he basically said that uh, when when they went through the kind of the copywriting course in ad school, one of the first things they were told was, forget everything you know about like grammar and spelling and that kind of thing, um, because writing for advertising um, and writing for for marketing is different to journalism. You're going to make up words, you're going to put full stops in places that don't seem grammatically correct, but that have a particular impact for a particular purpose. Or use no grammar or, you know, whatever. So you, you kind of use these devices differently to what you might um, if you were writing a novel or if you were um, writing for a publication of some kind. Is that true? And, like, how does, how does that work? Yeah, it's partly true. Um, so it works on a couple of different levels. The first one, though, is that you shouldn't forget everything you know about grammar. I mean, a lot of people don't know much about grammar in the first <laughs> place. So, um, so I think, you know, like a, a really great advertising copywriter who breaks all the rules will understand all the rules of grammar and know exactly what they're breaking when they're doing it. Right. So that's one part of it. Um, but the other part is that, yeah, like you, one of the big no-nos in writing is to um, to write really short sentences, put a, a, a full stop after one word. I mean, you would never do that in um, in proper grammatical writing. Um, but if it grabs someone's attention or it's very engaging, why not use it? So that's one that's one thing, you know, because the 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 currency of advertising is to be as engaging as possible, um, using whatever means as possible. So if it means breaking the rules to do that, then fine. I think the other element though is. Um, 
for a lot of good writing um, or like courses that are about good writing, the colloquial language is a big no-no. Um, so you want to use very sort of neutral language that anyone might be able to understand. But with advertising, you really want to try and um, become like use the language of um, different um, groups of people like mothers or teenagers or um, you're sort of um, encouraged to use more colloquial language that might not be right for a novel, for example, right. or um, uh, an article um, in the age newspaper. Um, but it might be a fantastic way of getting the attention of a particular group of people. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's the other element of it is using more colloquial language, which might be um, a bad thing for regular writing, but it's a good thing for advertising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're trying to command attention and generate engagement and ultimately compel somebody to do something, sure. whether it's think something or act in a particular way. Sure, yeah. So those those are two things. The other thing is to try and just you know, show, like most brands are just trying to show that they understand their audience. So the best way to show that you understand an audience is, you know, to put a a young 20-something entrepreneur in an ad for Adam Jaffrey, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like, we understand you, Adam, because we use your language. We we have a guy in the ad who looks just like you. Mm -hmm. You know, these are the things that they do. So if you can write in a way that uses your language and the way that you communicate with the bird, you go, hey, these guys get me, you know. Whereas the 60-year-old, lady from Dandenong, she reads that thing and goes, what the hell are they talking about? Yeah. Um, so it's just a way of kind of making things more relevant to you um, and getting on your level. It's interesting. I think a, a lot of um, discussions with people I've had on the podcast, um, one of the key lessons or one of the key kind of takeaways that continually comes up, people from different backgrounds, copywriters, entrepreneurs, um, people who've worked in casinos, um, you know, People from all over the world that I've interviewed, one of the key things that um, keeps coming up is know thy customer, uh, know thy audience, and uh, and and it's just so it's just like a marketing fundamental one hundred and one, um, and yet it just continues to to, to pop up, and uh, I think it's just really interesting and, and important to to point out at this point, um, given uh, given that's kind of where we started our conversation. Yeah, it's a hard one though because you know um, I was just reading a, a book recently. Um, called On Writing Well by William Zinzer. And one of his things is forget about your audience, you know. (laughs) Do not write for an audience. Write for yourself. Because if you write in a way that you find engaging and about something that you're passionate about, it will find an audience. So that's one, like, and that's, like, one way of, because (laughs) the rest of marketing, the rest of advertising, the rest of design, all the others say you have to understand your customer as much as possible, which is very, very true. And the way that I always try and write things is to have a very, very clear image in mind of who the the audience is. But I think at the same time, sometimes there's too much of a crutch on understanding the audience or Mm -hmm. develop, especially in marketing, it's like marketing is all about developing personas that like um, segment um, different groups and, um, of people in a particular way and it completely dehumanizes the people that you're writing for. Yeah. And in a way, sometimes the best way to really connect in a human way with an audience is to, compl- is to forget that they are a person with a bunch of stats at- attached to them and just to connect as humans, as human beings like we are doing now mm-hmm. where... Um, like I like, and to write that way, it just means that you've got to write in a way that you find engaging. So I think you know, like I, I like to say that as well because it seems contrarian to the rest of 
um, the marketing and advertising world that mm -hmm. says know your customer as much as possible. Um, whereas sometimes I would say you can um, sometimes it backfires. Well, I did tell you before we started to disagree with me so we get an interesting conversation. So yeah, I appreciate good. you. Okay, that's disagreement number one. <laughs> we'll be uh, like well, it's not really disagreement because I don't disagree. I just think that at the same time, sometimes it, it pays to stop thinking about the audience for a while. Yeah, yeah, okay. And look, I agree with you that uh, the way we define audiences from a marketing perspective is is totally broken. You know, it's like. Who's the target market for this product? I don't know. It's 18 to 34-year-old females who live in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. It's like, apart from being 18 to 34 years old, female, and living in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, what other things do these people share? Like, what other attributes? That's not very specific. Like, No, that's right. And that's in my book as well, the, the idea that the, the 18 to 24-year-old or the 30 to 40-year-old female, these this type of segmentation is about... Media buying. So yeah. if you... But even then it's shit. But it's not because if I go, all right, I've got a product, it's my book, um, I know it's for people who run small businesses um, and that the majority of small businesses are run by, you know, women in the ages of 25 to 55, um, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go call up a, a media company and they're going to say, oh, great, that's fantastic. I've got four publications that are all targeted to small business owners um, that are female, 25 to, um, to 50. Um, let's run a few ads in them. And then you get that spread and it's a good way of like placing ads in media. Mm. But it's a terrible way of thinking, all right, who is Sally, 34, lives in, you know, Turak, runs her business, washing dogs, like that is more useful to you writing a thing. But at the same time, this is the other thing is if you've got Sally 34, you know, washing dogs in Turak and you've got Billy, you know, 52 selling um, cars in Preston, like how, like are they really that different? Yeah, it gets fragmented. Like are they, or are they, should you write that differently for those two different audiences? Well, by, and by writing for Sally, you're not writing for Billy. Well, that's right, right, exactly. Yeah, and at the same time, people do this all the time as well in, in copy briefs. It's like, all right, it's female, she's Sally, she, she washes dogs, she likes watching MasterChef. And I'm like, how can I write in a way that is going to be different for her than it would be for someone else. In reality, what these people really want is for you to get to the point, to give them relevant information that's for them, and to like help them do the task that they need to do. I mean, that's what a lot of online copywriting is about. So that's another thing that down to a certain point, the tone that you use doesn't change depending on, you know, the audience that you're talking to. Um, it like there are elements of tone that should always be true for all people. Um, yeah, so I was going to ask then, just uh, on that, is tone actually important or is it dead in, a, in, in today's world where our attention is so fleeting that we don't have time to try and absorb a brand's kind of feeling through copy? Um, we just want them to get to the point and tell us what, what they're selling and why. Yeah, well, no, tone's very important. Um, but didn't you just say that it wasn't? No, I said that, I, well, okay, so maybe we need to have a discussion about tone. So, so tone, I'm trying to create yeah, some moments here. No, that's good. <laughs> right, you're doing good. So, um, so, so shifts in language use dependent on two very different audience types um, is like 
it's not helpful to me as a writer and I don't think it's helpful helpful to the business that I'm working with to try and write in these ways because I think it's a distraction to the reader. Um, but tone is very important in the sense that I think that um, getting to the point is an element of tone and that's a great one. Um, so there, And I think there are a few items of tone like um, friendliness is a great element of tone. Getting to the point is a good one. Um, you know, uh, like being sort of down to earth, like these are, when people read a thing, they go, oh, great, really gets to the point. It's like written in a really clear way. Like I really understand what they're talking about. And that's the tone that kind of does that for you. Mm -hmm. Um, but the way a lot of people think about tone, the first thing they think about is, um, you know, is it like zany or is it like, does it use, um, like, uh, puns? Is it, um, you know, uh, is it the tone that a female would use? Um, the, that sort of tone is is more um, like that. It's more related to characters in a novel, mm -hmm. and a character would have a very different tone to a different character, rather than a business which doesn't speak like a character in a novel. It speaks like a business, like. A, it should act like a business. But they are a character in a way, right? Like a brand is a character. Yeah, and they're sure. trying to portray yeah. certain values to the marketplace, yeah. which should be reflected through your visual marketing as well as your copy. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And But it doesn't... But and remember, we're talking about words and language here. So it's the words that they use shouldn't, um, shouldn't make that character too, um, like, I guess, uh, shouldn't make that... Uh, character too unique in a uh in a sense like a, a character in a novel might be right um but it should the words should work in service to the broader brand idea or the broader brand category um the broader brand strategy which might just be about you know i mean if it's apple for example like apple's language that they use is very like kind of lofty and very um sort of uh like a little bit abstract sometimes. Mm. It's got this, you know. It's always like superfluous. Yeah, a little bit superfluous. Like, like and it's got this like, you know, design for people or like whatever it is. Ah. And, but it works when you put it with these, you know, big areas of white space and big, beautiful photography. It's kind of got, it, it all adds to the character of the brand. But the words itself aren't doing all the work. They're doing the work in conjunction with mm. photography, in conjunction with, you know, images, in, in conjunction with um, typography and color and all that sort of stuff. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned strategy there. Let's kind of um, take a little bit of a pivot in the conversation and, and talk about uh, copy strategy or probably more broadly content strategy. So maybe in your own words, like what is... What is content strategy? And and probably it's different today to what it would have been, um, you know, even a couple of years ago um, with uh, the way people interact with content online these days. But yeah, it's a good question. I think a lot of content strategists probably couldn't answer that for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can take. That's right, I can. So um, uh, content strategy. Um, there's a, um, a a a a great person. Um, in the content strategy field, her name is Christina Halverson. She's actually in Melbourne right now because there's a content strategist conference happening uh, tomorrow and the following day. Um, and she wrote a book um, called Content Strategy for the Web. And in her book about content strategy, she outlines content strategy as 
um, four elements um, of a quadrant. And those elements are, um, on the left-hand side, um, substance, which is um, the, the information that you're conveying, um, and the other one is structure, which is how is that information you're conveying structured, which could be in a page, it could be across multiple pages. So in those two um, parts of the quadrant, substance and structure, you're talking about the words that you're using and the way that that's organized or categorized on a website. Mm -hmm. The other two parts of the quadrant are about workflow, um, which is how is uh, how 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 is information written, created, published, um, managed over time? What is the workflow for getting no words into words up online? And the other one is governance. So who makes decisions about what words should go up on a website? And um, when something goes wrong, who is called to account? So those four elements are the elements of content strategy, um, substance, structure, workflow, and governance. And so um, as a content strategist, I'll work with um, a big organization. They might come, come to us with um, their website that's been around for a long time. Um, it might have anywhere from 2,000 to 20,000 pages of information. It could be a water company, for example. Um, that's a lot of information about water. That's right. It's a lot of information <laughs> about water. And so the first question a content strategist asks is, do we need this inf much information yeah. about water? Like, why has all this information been created in the first place? Yeah. What um, objectives is it trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. um, then also, you got to ask, well, um, well, first of all, usually it comes to us as like... Um, <coughs> as part of a website redesign. So the question is, how do we migrate all the content that we have at the moment over to a new thing? Mm -hmm. um, what's involved in that? Who do we need to get um, uh, working on this project? Um, so the content strategist at that point just has a lot that they have to need to, to do mm. to help an organization manage their content, develop new content, work out a strategy for whether it should stay or whether it should go. Um, and obviously, if you're doing a website redevelopment, work with designers and a design team to structure that content in a way that is going to be useful to people who need to do particular tasks. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about uh, social media and kind of this proliferation of how uh, content creation is is exploding at the moment, and brands are creating uh, content in formats, you know, written, visual, um, audio, and video. So this podcast is content, but you know we've seen the the explosion of video content in in the last you know twelve to twenty four months. Um, I guess driven by organisations like um, BuzzFeed, I suppose, uh, kind of one of the the powerhouses of online video content. But you know brands are doing this now, um, as well as publications, um, as well as startups and whatever. Um, does, does content strategy change in, in that world? Uh, and, and if so, how? Yeah, so there is a big rift in content strategy um, at the moment in the field, which is one um, that sort of separates content strategy from content marketing. So um, that a lot of the time, the, the reason it's a rift is that um, uh, marketers, content marketers will call themselves content strategists, and information architects will call themselves content strategists. Mm -hmm. and, um, but they're both doing very, very different things. So the one that you're just talking about now is uh, more of a content marketing sort of um, 
section, I guess. Well, some of it is. So there's probably two parts. One of it is content created in order to encourage as many people to visit a thing as possible or to buy as many widgets as possible. And the other one is to educate and help people get a better understanding of a certain topic or a thing um, in order to ach- achieve some sort of business objective. Mm-hmm. So, um, so in that sense, um, uh, yes, like the proliferation of lots of different types of content um, has uh, has happened over the last you know five years or so. There's a lot of stuff online, um, and some of it's amazing, some of it's terrible. A lot of content strategists. Um, who see themselves as different to content marketers would say, well, you know what, I don't want to be a part of just creating more stuff for the sake of more stuff. Um, I'm more interested in organizing um, uh, information on a website or a web page mm. and making sure that that stuff is easy to find and easy to use so people can get in and do what they need to do. That's really fascinating, the fact that you've kind of pulled out those two different types of content strategy how one is you know really content marketing and the other is information architecture and you know those who've worked in digital agencies or worked on a website build or redesign or migration like you talked about before will know about information architecture it's essentially the way um, information is categorized and laid out to your uh, word before uh, Tate structured on a on a website um so think about like the navigation of a site. That's like a really basic form of um, IA or information architecture. But yeah, I, I, I'd never really thought about information architecture as a form of content strategy before just now. And uh, now that you've said it, like it's a huge, hugely important part of it. Um, in fact, I always thought of uh, IA as um, really a, a task that the development team would really work on rather than a copywriter. Mm. So it's really interesting to... Um, well, that's why a lot of websites or a UX have terrible... Element. Yeah, well, yeah. I was going to say that's why a lot of websites have terrible navigation. The yeah. dev guys have done it. Um, and um, uh, But yeah, or a UXer would do it. And um, So is, yeah. is, would you say that uh, a content strategist in, in the sense that you were talking about before, is that the same or different from uh, the tasks that a UXer... Might, might do. And for any of those who don't know what UXer is, it's a user experience. Yeah, so um, a lot of content strategists are user experience designers. Yeah. So content strategy is, it's a really weird, weird um, title. Um, I went to a content strategy conference in the States earlier in the year and um, got a really good you know, cross-section of all the different types of people who call themselves content strategists. And um, it's more of an interest than a particular field, if you know what I mean. Um, and, and I think the same of, of UX, of user experience design, that, and this is how we talk about it at Thick, where I work, um, you know, UX, yes, UX is a skill set and it's a domain of knowledge, um, that somebody has and they call themselves a UXer. And yes, there's a content strategist who is me um, and I do that. But we both do IAs and we both, um, you know, work together to do them. Um, but, um, and I do, I practice UX as part of my content strategy job and the UX is practice content strategy as part of the UX job. So it's not something that's hard and fast. That person has to do that. Um, it's more like a, you know, um, uh, it's 
the the roles are very fluid and they should be very fluid in a place that um, where anyone can do the information architecture, for example. Mm-hmm. So I just want to ask about content marketing then. Mm. What are your thoughts and opinions on content marketing? You know, there's this kind of, I guess, um, wisdom in the field of marketing right now that content is king. What does that statement mean to you? Yeah, no, I think, um, well, I think content marketing is very important. Um, even though content is king is a cliche, um, I do think that it is um, true in the sense that, you know, if you, in today's world, uh, online, online world, um, uh, if you want to get people's attention, you want people to buy your thing, um, then the best way to do it is provide really great, useful information, really great um, entertaining information um, that engages people and then you say, by the way, buy this thing or now that you know this information, maybe you'd be interested in X and that is the way to get people to start um, buying things or um, using things or using services um, instead of the traditional way, which is slap an ad on something, which nobody cares about anymore, Um, especially Mm. online. Banner ads are just the worst. They have a really, really, really low click-through rate. I think the industry average is like... um like half of a fraction of a percent. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I, I've, <laughs> I've mentioned this joke on uh, the podcast before, it's, it's essentially a rounding error. <laughs> like the, the, the click-through rate is essentially a rounding error. So do, do people actually intend to do it or is it just like they've accidentally clicked on the wrong, the wrong part of the page? That's right, yeah. It's stupid. It doesn't, like banner ads are, are ridiculous. And the, the perfect um, remedy to that is create some great content and then um, helps like... And then if someone reads it and goes, hey, this is amazing, you know, oh, hey, I just read this blog post that Tate wrote about copywriting. I think that sounds amazing. Hey, look, he writes a book about it. I'm going to buy it. That's a, that's a much better, um, like, uh, user journey mm-hmm. than someone seeing an ad for the book and then going, well, I, I don't know much about it. I probably won't buy it. So that's why content is king. Um, the thing is, though, that... Um, like I always find it a bit of a myopic understanding of the full, um, like the full range of uh, marketing and all the things that marketing can provide. So um, a billboard, for example, or a, a TV ad, or um, a you know a radio ad. All of these things still have a, a function and can still um, get as many people to buy a thing as possible. Um, so in that sense, I think it's just another medium that's available to use rather than it being, you know, the be-all and end-all. Yeah. But I do think, though, having said all that, that, like, the most effective advertising ever is uh, product placement in movies, which is basically content is king. I mean, you know, <laughs> someone who grabs a, opens the fridge and grabs a Coke out and, and, you know, pops a lid and starts drinking it and is having a chat, um, to somebody else and it's just part of the movie. It's fantastic advertising. Um, and that is, the whole point of that is that, well, you're there to watch the movie. You're not there to, you know, you don't feel like you're watching an ad, but it is an ad. Um, and it is like burrowing its way into your skull and saying, you know, here's another picture of a Coke just to remind you that this thing exists. Mm. 
So in that sense, it's done though. Like, I've, well, yeah, that's I've right. Seen, yeah. I've seen TV shows where you know they to use your coke example, they'll put the coke down on the bench and then walk away, and the camera just will like hang on that shot of the coke for like another three seconds, and you're like, uh, they really just do that. <laughs> but I mean, the point is though that you saw it, and that's all that matters because, um, and that's why content is king because. People go to watch your movie. People go. People sit down in front of the television to watch the news, to watch um, Netflix, to watch whatever. They don't sit down to watch an ad. Um, so, in order to get in front of a person, the best way to do it is to weave it into your thing. Mm. Um, and that's why content is king. So, here's a really interesting question: Brands are now publishers, right? They have their own blogs. They have their own, you know, um, social channels, which have video, audio, pictures, all that kind of stuff. So are actual content, um, things like movies and things like TV shows. You know, they're inherently content in themselves. Um, and then there's things like publications, you know, The Guardian or BuzzFeed, I suppose, and um, Mashable and those kinds of places that produce content. Like, what's the difference now between a publication and a brand? Given that they're all publishing content in similar ways... Well, I guess there's no difference then in the way you just explained it. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, like Coca-Cola, right? They, they well, Actually, maybe like Red Bull is a better example, right? They, they publish a lot of video content and, you know, they're very kind of like aspirational in that way. Um, but, you know, Mashable produces a lot of video content as well. Now, one's selling really overpriced sugar water in, a, in, a can, in an aluminium can. The other one is selling... Um, I guess your uh, time um, because you go to Mashable and read their um, website and then they sell, ironically, more ads. Um, that's how they make their money through, uh, through advertising. So, you know, but, I mean, that's just like saying that any newspaper is, um, is a brand in that sense, which they are, which it is. But I think also what you're talking about is the shift that's happened over the last 30 or 40 years from um, the idea that, you had um, a music festival that happened, for example, um, in the 70s, um, chucked together by a couple of mates, um, uh, organised all the bands, everyone came down, enjoyed the music, no advertising, no nothing. Then to, you know, 10, 20 years later, um, the music festival's still going, um, but to run a better, bigger event, they invite um, advertisers to come along and say, hey, we're creating this thing um, that everyone's going to really enjoy. You can put your advertising everywhere. But then the advertisers are saying, well, hold on. It's very restricted. We only get to put our ads in some places. Um, you know, um, it's not called the, you know, the Pepsi Music Festival. It's called the you know farm farmland music festival um, we want to have more ownership of it so then what happens is and this is what started happening in the 90s was that the instead of um, you know brands saying let's go and look for a publication a music festival or whatever to go and sponsor they were saying let's do it ourselves mm -hmm. so then v festival you know was like you know what, we're not going to sponsor a festival, we're going to run the festival, we're going to be the show, which is basically what you're talking about, which is them becoming the publisher, which I think is like, you know, it is what it is. Like, sometimes it works really well, um, sometimes it's terrible. Um, I think, you know, it is kind of like, I don't know, uh, I personally like um, things that are published or events that are put on, um, that are put on by 
people who are really passionate about that thing and it's not about selling more stuff. It's just about trying to share what they're interested and passionate with with the world. Mm. Um, personally, I like that sort of stuff. Um, but, but they're like, trying to achieve a business outcome, right? So it well, can't be yeah. just about that. No, but I mean, but this is the thing. We're talking about big brands here as well, being publishers and is it their place to be or not? And I think, yeah, if they can. I mean, this is like... Um, I heard, I didn't know this, Transformers, um, Robots in Disguise. That was a, uh, um, an idea by a toy company, I think, to create. Well, they created Transformers and then the um, TV series was created for, to sell the toys. Right. So, which was one of the, and that was in the 80s, I think. So, it was, that was when this was all starting, which was saying, let's not find a, um, a TV show to make the toys of. Let's create a TV show manufacture this interest and then sell the toys for it which is sort of just it's just a flip of how mm. companies used to do it but I think we're so used to it now like that you know I just think uh, I'm fine with with brands being publishers or or even making movies or doing all that sort of stuff as long as it's good like if it's terrible everyone will pan it so are there any common traits between uh, brands that are good at publishing and creating good content compared to those that aren't? Well, I guess if they invest in it and get the right people involved. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's also like, I mean, you would know this as someone who's like, um, you know, pretty deeply involved in social media. There are some brands who are t- so terrible at being involved in social media who are trying very hard to like be down with the kids online. When there are, And there are others who for a short period somehow get the right people involved and they are like hilarious or they're mm-hmm. just writing that very fine line of terrible in poor taste stuff and good brand strategy and somehow it's just the right formula but it happens only ever once in a blue moon on social media i don't know what do you think of that when when brands do so, try and do social media i i think uh i think what it really comes down to is What's the intent um, that they're trying to achieve? I think if it's purely um, sales focused, it always fails. It 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 always flops. But if uh, the the primary kind of objective is um, entertainment or engagement with their fans, or just to to kind of create interesting things that kind of fit that medium, um, then it will have more like it, it will be more likely to succeed. But if you start from the place of let's sell shit. Uh, you're going to crash and burn. And then I think the second thing is um, understanding the, the platform you're on. So this is kind of, I guess, um, a, a bit of behind the curtain of social media strategy. But, you know, creating a, a YouTube video is very different from creating a uh, Snapchat story. Um, you can potentially create them with the same device uh, and you can put similar content on both, but uh, the way people use them and interact is very different. Um, and people... It's very easy to tell when something feels out of place for a particular medium because each social media channel, essentially, and we're getting kind of really um, down into the the tactics, I suppose, of it, but each channel has its own um, kind of set of norms and expectations and the way people um, behave and and communicate. Um, So, for example, on YouTube, people will, like, point to different parts of the screen to call out particular things in the background or maybe click here to get a link or whatever or view my next video or whatever. Um, Whereas on Snapchat, um, strangely, people will ask you to 
screenshot something to vote on a particular thing or whatever. Those are just two some really basic examples. But so I think understanding the platform is one half of it, and and having um, good intentions is the other part of it. Now I kind of mentioned it before. Um, having a, a business objective or a business outcome is important for any brand that is participating uh, in in social media or creating any sort of content because content is expensive to create and uh, getting the right people uh, in the right place at the right time and creating those set of circumstances that blue moon is is very difficult time consuming and expensive to do so yeah, you need to somehow weave a, a brand narrative into it. And I think um, what you kind of spoke about before is th- probably the best way to do it. Create content that's useful or interesting or helpful or entertaining or funny. Um, have it aligned with the brand purpose or mission in some way. You know, that's the thing, right? It's like all those things that you said are all true, you know, funny, entertaining, useful, but so many brands fail at it. Yeah. They like really fail, like and it, and like you're saying as well. There are particular norms of the medium, and um, people online are particularly skeptical, yeah. are particularly quick to pounce. Um, you know, Twitter um, people you know, on Twitter, people can be particularly like uh, they really own their language that they use on there. And as soon as brands start using it, it can go really sour really quickly. Um, and that's, I think, you know. I find that stuff hilarious as brand as publisher. Like, I just think, you know, like how I, it's so, it's like a dad trying to talk yeah. in like, like a, uh, a, um, uh, like a um, hip hop artist or something. It's just like, <laughs> what are you doing? And that's what so many of them try and do. Um, like the thing of using Bay in Twitter messages for a long time, like every, I've seen different, um, blogs online where they're just screenshotting all the ridiculous uses of brands saying bay in their Twitter posts. Like, I think that's this, like, you know, yeah, but, brands as publisher who'd completely fail. But at some point, that was probably an appropriate thing to say if you were a particular brand. Like, you've got 7-Eleven, uh, you may have got away with that, Right. But if you're not 7-Eleven and you're not kind of youth-focused and you're not speaking in a youth vernacular, um, then it's like total mega fail. It's the dad being the hip-hop artist. But see, this is the thing about language as well is that like it's a borrowed, it's like borrowed language um, in order to try and, um, you know, be relevant to a younger audience rather than like there are some, this is the blue moons that I'm talking about, some where you go, they they become... um, they they write in a way that teenagers are go wow this is the new cool thing rather than oh here's a brand that's just trying to use the language and borrowing the things that we're using yeah it's like uh, jumping on the trend or creating the trend that's right exactly yeah. yeah and you just can't I mean the thing is you just can't you can't plan to create the trend well yeah and you know I'm sure you've had clients I have um, come to you and say uh, you know how do we create a viral video or a viral campaign and you go. If I knew, mate, I wouldn't be working here in an agency. I'd be making millions doing this privately consulting or whatever. Uh, but, you know, like a great example of that is Old Spice, you know. Um, the man your man could smell like became kind of a, a cultural vernacular that, that came off the back of a content marketing advertisement. Um, and that was 
probably still the most successful content marketing campaign that we've ever seen uh, in in the kind of the internet age. Um, and nothing's really done as good as that since. So, yeah, I, I completely understand where you're coming from, but I don't have the solution to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, the, that old spy stuff, um, yeah, it was terrific. But it wasn't trying to, the thing about it was, there were lots of other versions of the ad that were done, you know, pre- previous to that particular one. Um, whereas that one somehow, for some reason, grabbed everyone's attention. Um, and then, you know, uh, like 11 year old boys, uh, remaking the video on YouTube and sticking it up all over the world. And in that sense, it's not brand trying to work out what the next big thing 11 year old boys are going to want to make is it's ad agency having a bit of fun making an ad. And then for, you know, um, it be just being picked up. Um, and they did for some other reason. They did some other cool stuff with their campaign. Like after they launched the ad, I think it was a, a week or a couple of weeks afterwards. They did like a live response thing. So they like basically got um, Mustafa, the the cast member. I think he's an NFL player or something. Um, they got him in a room with you know the agency people, obviously people from the client and a bunch you know film crew essentially. And people were writing in questions or comments to the YouTube videos, and they literally made responses to them. Um, you know. Hey, Tate, thanks for your question. Sure, I can put a rubber ducky on my head and do the splits and whatever while riding a motorbike, catching sharks. And it's like they literally did the thing that you had commented two hours earlier and then published it and released it. So that was like kind of cool. And um, and that, that that takes us down a whole other rabbit hole of how do, you cre- how do you create kind of like real-time marketing and, and maybe that we'll pause on that topic because um, I think it's a whole other discussion in itself. So... Here's the bad segue, but uh, jumping from one topic to another, I want to ask you about your book. So you're an author now, and and um, this is kind of a new introduction you can give to people. How does it feel? It feels good. <laughs> um, I heard you mention, you know, 20 minutes ago, you said, in my book I wrote such and such. That's right, which yeah. Is sl- which is nice. I, I slipped like that. that in there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great to be published now, um, although self-published, which I was explaining earlier, is you know the lesser form of being published because you haven't been welcomed into the hallowed fields of authors by a gatekeeper called a publisher. Um, but as you were saying to me, you have a a physical book that's printed that you can give to people, which which is its own special thing. Well, so for authors um, in the field, I think being published by a publisher maybe is that kind of pinnacle of success. Um, but for for everybody else, for the 99% of other people who are out there, if you say, I wrote a book and you're holding it in your hand, like I wrote a book, like I wrote an e-book is different to I wrote a paper book, I think. Oh, why um, is that? I, I don't know. I think there's just something. And look, inherently, uh, actually just getting it printed is probably not that much more difficult or, or you know, expensive or whatever. But saying, hey, go download my ebook or my PDF is very, very different to like handing someone a, a bound piece of paper and saying, I wrote this, right? And it just gives you some instant credibility for some reason. Oh, that's good. I'm glad. <laughs> so you've got that, right? Yeah, I got it now. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, for most people, I don't think they either know or care um, about publishers. The other thing I'd mention about that is um, in terms of gatekeepers, there's no gatekeepers anymore. Like I'm doing this, I'm doing a radio show, Right. 
It's called a podcast, yeah, but well, I'm I doing believe, a radio show. Yeah, and... I believe in that because I published a book. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, um, I don't have ABC yeah. um, telling me, yeah, sure, like, come into the studio and you can interview Tate this week and next week you can interview this person and we'll put you on this time slot between whatever and whatever. It's like, no, I've got an audience. They listen to my show uh, and and I don't need someone else to, to vet that or tell me about it. So it's the same for you. So what's the book about? Ah, so the book is about um, copywriting. <laughs> um, so it's specifically for small businesses and small organizations. The reason I wrote the book was that I was working in a, um, in a co-working space and I was sitting next to a girl, her name was Jess. And Jess is a producer um, who at the time was working um, with um, a bunch of different very small design studios one or two person teams and what she would do is accept in briefs from clients and then send them out to all the different studios and say, who wants to work on this job? Um, and a, uh, a lot of the projects are very low cost. Um, sometimes they were, it was like a $2,000 job and it had to be designed and built, um, a website had to be designed and built. Um, and she would um, turn to me in the office and say, hey, I've got this client, um, we've just... Um, built this website for them and they need to write copy for their website can you give them some tips or just write like a little one pager or something and I thought oh well there's so like you know first of all I was freelancing at the time I was thinking maybe I should do the writing for them and get them to pay me um, but they can't afford it I mean they can't even afford 500 bucks mm. which as a freelancer is only going to get you so far um, you know, it's not much. You want to be working on much, you know, bigger projects for more money. Yeah. So what I was thinking was, well, if there was just a book that these small businesses um, could read that would give them some information that might help them feel a bit more confident about writing their own copy, um, then I would think they would find that very useful. So that's where the idea came from. Um, and so the book, well, we were talking about audience earlier, the, bo- the book has a very, very particular audience, which is, small business owners or people who work for small businesses or small organizations who um, are probably not, um, who do not think of themselves as copywriters and just need some basic information to help them do the job that they need to do. Um, but since creating the book and, um, and not even before I even published it and people read it, people, um, a lot of people were very interested who wanted to become copywriters so there's sort of two audiences. One of them is people who run small businesses. The other one is um, people who want to transition to become a copywriter or want to um, just become a copywriter themselves. Mm-hmm. You spoke about self-publishing. So you wrote this book uh, yourself in your own time whilst you're still working uh, at an agency, launched it, marketed it, um, got it printed, like edited, I suppose, like Talk to me about like the steps involved in actually self-publishing a book. Yeah, so you got to write it first. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, how long does that take? Like, how, it right. took me four years. Four years, and yeah. how, how long is the book? How many words is it? Well, I suppose that's I guess what I'm asking. I yeah, don't, I don't know. It's ten thousand words. Okay. So, um, which is not you know, it's not like a eighty thousand word novel, um, but it's a good length for um, you know for uh, like a um, a book for a nonfiction book for you know 
learning a new skill. It so so yeah to the point. The t- to the point. That's right. It's to the point. Yeah. Good element of tone. Um, so 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 yeah. So I started writing about four years ago. Actually, before I was working at the agency that I'm at now, um, and and that's when I had most time to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, then so. Um, I sort of chipped away at it for a long time. Then it got to a point where I was like, I need to send this to an editor to see what they think. I sent it to um, an editor. She did a fantastic job, gave me lots of great feedback. I rewrote a bunch of it, added probably another 5,000 words. Um, and then I started showing it to other people. I got some good feedback and then um, was ready to call up a designer and say, hey, let's make this thing a reality. So... What's the what's the editing process like? Because I don't really know much about actually publishing books. You send you send it to somebody, and you know they kind of tear it to shreds and say like this part's working, this isn't, um, and just give you some really like um, I suppose blunt feedback. You know, like or impartial feedback. I guess is probably a better way to describe it. Because you you kind of fall in love with this project, right? And it's a, you're like really deep in it, so you need someone external to. Yeah, tell you what's, what's going on with it. Yeah, so yeah, editing experience is really interesting like that because you have to... Um, I've heard stories of people saying they've um, written their first novel and taken it to the publisher and they said, we can only use, you know, um, 5,000 words of this 80,000 words you just wrote. Um, <laughs> take that 5,000 and expand it. Um, so, wow. Which is something that happens all the time. I mean, there are writers who say that they'll write a chapter um, in a day and then they'll read it at the end of the day and say that was terrible and just throw it out. I mean, um, like I think with, um, with, with creating anything, writing in particular, um, yeah, you've got, a, you've got the, the creative expressive element of it, which is you're in there, you're writing it, you're doing it, and then you've got to have that sort of more rational um, uh, part of it where you assess and you go is this actually any good or not and yeah the editor plays a really great role in doing that mm-hmm. um yeah so my editor mel campbell um she read it um at, edited it for grammar and which is a really great experience i recommend anyone does that even people who think they're really good at grammar to have someone else edit their work for grammar um and um, she also you know edited for language and made lots of comments on it but then also sent me a long email that basically said, here's what I think about it as a whole thing. Mm-hmm. And um, here, are, basically, yeah, it's very blunt feedback. Um, and at that point, at that point, I was like, I've got to get rid of my introduction completely and completely rewrite it. And so I did that. And I also thought she su- suggested moving something from the middle to the end and all this other stuff. So, um, so yeah, it, it was a really crucial point in being able to take it from just something that I'd kind of hacked together to something that was actually going to be useful to somebody. Mm. And you say hacked together, but it, it probably isn't really hacked together. Like you think it's like a piece of thing, a piece of work, like a, a oh, an entire solid piece of work that you've, you've sculpted together really. And then to, to kind of show it to somebody else in the world and um, they, they, they pick at it and, and pull bits out and change or want to change things and whatever. How do you not fall in love with it too much so that that, process hurts oh i've just been doing this long enough i think <laughs> you've had you've well had and i think as well tearing your work to shreds for too many years that well you... <laughs> i like well it's never the clients who have an issue with it it's always like you know your colleagues who are like yeah you know 
Or you show them something like, eh, you've written this amazing headline, you think it's hilarious, you show it to someone, they're like, I don't know about that. You go, mm. like, either you go, they don't know what they're talking about, I know this is good, or you go, uh, if it didn't work for them, it might not work for other people as well. And so I'm never, I'm never wedded to anything that I've made. So how do, you, how do you know the difference between those two scenarios? Well, you show it to someone and they go, it's terrific, or I don't know. Or you show it to multiple people and one person says, oh, I love it, it's hilarious. But then another person who you respect more and always gives you fantastic feedback says, I uh, get what you're trying to do, but I don't think it's quite there. That's the person you listen to, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Okay. So, so, yeah, like, um, yeah, when, when Mel gave me her feedback, um, it, yeah, at first I was like, oh, no, I've, I really wanted to look good in her eyes. And then, mm. But then my next reaction is, all right, now what do I need to do to make this thing amazing? So I think um, I kind of go through that a bit of a it's a bit of a roller coaster when someone gives me feedback on something that I've done um you know could be this podcast right like I I create it uh I've I've done a a few episodes now and it's been out in the world and then someone gives me some hey you should you know interview someone in this realm or with this kind of experience and my first instinct is to kind of put the wall up and I'm like no I made this I know what I'm doing and then like and these are people that I trust and respect and whatever. Uh, and then it kind of takes like maybe a day and just kind of marinates for a little bit. And then you go, okay, maybe I should start thinking about that or whatever. And eventually I kind of come around. But I think that's probably just a personality trait of mine um, where I'm just like, well, maybe it's most people. Like I'm very resistant to feedback in the initial kind of moments of it. Um, is it feedback though or is it suggestions? Because I, at that point, because a suggestion could be, oh, you know what, you should totally interview this person. But a piece of feedback might be, ah, eh, the format is a bit weird to me. It's a bit long. Like, I don't quite know how to follow it. Mm-hmm. And then I listen to the first five minutes. Like, that could be the feedback. And you might go, oh, that burns, you know? Yeah. Or you can go, actually, I wonder if there's something to that. And then you can make a change. And then... Um, but the problem is, though, if, uh, this is the thing about feedback, is you have to, A, respect the person who's giving it, and B, have to think that there's something in it that they said that actually everybody is thinking but nobody's yeah. telling you, you know? Yeah, which is, you know, what you were saying before, maybe ask more than one person um, because... It's a really good thing to do. There's, you know, uh, multiple opinions and viewpoints and things that you do have to cater to. So, actually... An interesting, um, and this is a bit of a, a tip that listeners can maybe take away, is if you've created something, whether it's, you know, something you've written or created or, like, anything, any piece of work you produce and um, and you're not sure about it, a good way to kind of vet it uh, is to um, show a few people in the office, but to show people that are not in your team. So, go and speak to the lawyer or the accountant or whatever um, if you've got those sort of people in, in your um, organisation and say, hey, what do you think of this social media post? And if they laugh at it or feel that it's maybe off tone or, you know, whatever, that's a good a good kind of barometer because they're not part of, you know, that they're more representative of, um, I guess, everybody rather than just the people within the marketing team or even more specifically, just the people within your specific, you know, function. So that's just kind of a, a good tip to, to, to think about. Yeah, that's good advice. So... Um, just to kind of um, finish up on, on, on the book, um, you've written it. Uh, what happens after that? You, <laughs> like, you have to sell this thing, Yeah, right? you've got to sell it, yeah. So the, the really interesting thing about books that 
I always knew, but now know more than before, is that you've got container and you've got contained. So um, it was really interesting when I put it on possible um, to try and raise the funds to publish it. Uh, so I needed to raise $7,000 in order to print it and to um, pay all the costs of marketing it and all that sort of stuff. And um, I raised $7,000. So to do that, I had to sell, I sold 250 books. So I sold 250 books that nobody had ever read before. Mm. And what that says to me is that, yeah, thanks, Adam, <laughs> you're one of those. So what that says to me is that, you know, you are selling the container, the thing that it, the wrapping, the, the cover, the promise that it's making, um, you know, me as an author, my experience, mm. these are the things that you're selling. And nobody, I was just, I was really nervous because I thought, Everybody says to me, ah, it's great, it'll be fine. You know, I'm sure it'll be a great book. Nobody's read it. Could have been terrible. There could have been nothing in it. It could have been like completely hacked together. Um, so this is what happens with books is that, you know, the, you know buy, the, buy the book by the cover or whatever. So, um, and then once people buy it, they read it and they go, ah, oh, this is a great book. I'm going to tell my friend. And then you get that word of mouth thing happening and, and that sort of stuff happens. So that's been one of the most interesting things to me is how much with a book you really do sell the wrapping of it more than you sell the actual contained element, um, mm. the, the actual information inside. Um, and, you know, someone buys it and that's good for me because I've got the money and that's a sale. And then they may read the first page, they may read, may read half of it, they may, may read all of it and get nothing out of it and put it away. Um, like none of that really matters to me in terms of a sale, um, but it matters to me in terms of like um, long-term sales because mm. a person who finds it useful and, and enjoyed it is going to tell somebody else. Um, but yeah, I think that's like to me books are like, than not anything to do with the cover. The cover has nothing to do with the book. Yeah. The book is the thing that's inside, like contained inside it. But yeah, so much of selling books is about selling the dream of a book, not the actual thing inside it. Yeah, well, because you can't really, I mean, you can a little bit preview it, but you can't really preview a book. Like, But yeah. I don't think people like expect to either. Like I... If I hear about a book, I'm like, um, like Christina Helverson's book, for example, the one I was explaining earlier, like I just bought that online because I heard it was um, a great book as a great introduction. When I read it, I was like, yeah, this is kind of good. Like it was like, of course, it introduced the content quadrant to me, which I explained before. I found that very, very useful and mm. have now used that a lot in my day-to-day work. But a lot of the rest of it, like I could take or leave it, but you know, I like I, I bought into the idea, the dream of it, um, and then took from it whatever I could. Um, so yeah, I, and I don't expect to be like, ah, I didn't get everything out of it, so it's a terrible book. Like you know, you just kind of take from it what you can, and and that's it. Like yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. I suppose like the initial. Um Initial, particularly with the way you launched the book with uh, a possible campaign, so it was like a pre-order, I guess, um, kind of model. You're you're relying on your brand equity and your network and kind of um, Tate being an expert in this field to be able to fuel that initial seven thousand dollars that you needed, um, and then after that, 
which is probably only starting to come to fruition now that the book is launched, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, the fact that people are reading it and then recommending it to other people. Um, and, and that's really the the value of the content within it, the, the contained, as you said before, that's what really determines the long tail sales. Um, yeah, whether right. you have a huge kind of like spike and then it drops to zero on day two or whether you kind of just like you're in a slow... Um, uh, a slow fade down and you, you, you know, the half-life, I guess, so to speak of that, those sales figures lasts a long time. Yeah, possibly. I mean, but then again, like I could, I, I think that's very true and it is a much more like a deeper, um, like way of, yeah, ensuring long-term sales. But at the same time, like I could buy a billboard down on Punt Road and, for $100,000 and maybe it would generate $200,000 in sales. Like that's probably a much better marketing tactic for me than rather than just to say, I'm going to let the book do its work. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in that sense, you're still selling the idea, the dream. Yeah. So it's, and it is a more powerful way of selling a book still. So even though I completely agree that like if the book is terrible, like people are going to find out and share that knowledge pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, And then you're not going to make, continued sales but if the book is good the fact that it's a good book probably won't take it to the next level as much as you know a sustained number of marketing tactics marketing campaigns might sure so just to give you a little bit of airtime on the beyond just selling the dream what are like the top maybe three things that uh, are contained within the book um, that uh, kind of pique people's interest and then they should go and buy it, obviously? Okay. So the way the book is structured is it starts off by saying, you are the expert. So the whole point of copywriting at this point is that um, you can, as a business owner, you can hire somebody else who's really great at writing, but that is not as useful in a copywriting sense as being the person who knows the most information about the thing that you're talking about. So you as a business owner, even if you're not the copywriter, you are the expert. So you don't need a copywriter. You are the expert. You are the writer. So that's the first part of the book. The second part is now that you are, you understand that you are the best person, the best place person to write this information, the next thing you need to know is that the most important thing to do when planning or starting to develop some writing for your business is to have a strategy rather than to focus on um, your language or style, which a lot of businesses can tend to do, which is to say um, this amazing new product um, or to use language that like hyperbole or um, colorful adjectives or that sort of stuff, which doesn't really add any new information about a product um, and may not be in service of some, you know, uh, bigger strategy that, that you might have. So the second part of the book helps the reader develop a strategy. Then it goes into some grammar, um, so some use, useful tactics in terms of grammar to help you write with a really strong, authoritative tone of voice. Um, and then finally, it's got some um, tips for writing for the web. Um, so the biggest things to come out of it are you are the expert, so you're the best person, uh, best place person to write copy for your business. Um, have a strategy before you do anything, and then focus on having um, some good grammar because it'll give you a really strong tone of voice. Excellent. And where can people buy this book? 
can buy it online from um, my website, which is practicalguidetocopywriting.com, um, or you can go to um, copygui.de. They both go there. Cool. Excellent. Well, congratulations on, uh, on being a published author. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. It was a really great discussion. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Mate. And thank you, Tate, for coming on the show for episode number 20. We made it. What a, what a great achievement. Um, you know, milestones in podcasting are the, the tens, the twenties, the, the fifties, hundreds. Um, so episode 20 was a, a really big achievement. Um, and thank you for coming along for the journey. And thank you to Tate for coming on the show. If you'd like to check out the show notes for today's episode, they're on the website, matepodcast.com slash 20. This show was edited by Josh Armour from Armour Pod Productions. The beautiful Mate Podcast logo is by Courtney Carmen, and the music is by Nine Inch Nails used under a Creative Commons license. I also just want to say a big thank you to everyone who's joined the show over the last couple of weeks. A few weeks back when we had uh, the one year anniversary show of Mate, um, the, the episode with Paul Ramondo. We got so many new listeners in one single day that um, Mate featured in the iTunes Top 100 Charts um, in the in the business category. So, so thanks for coming along. And if you are a new listener, welcome aboard. There is plenty more uh, of these amazing interviews coming. So, strap yourself in. Mate Podcast is made with love in Melbourne, Australia. This was a Jaffrey product. Bye for now. Bye.